Hi, and welcome to Coaches on the Rise, the podcast for all coaches of all sports. And I am your host, Celia Slater. Today, my guest is Buddy Tevens, the head football coach at Dartmouth University. And Buddy is really interesting because he's an innovator of sorts where he has vowed to keep the Dartmouth way, which means they do no tackling and no hitting during the week at practice. He's also worked with the engineering department at Dartmouth to create movable remote controlled dummies so that his team still practices the technique of tackling, but they do not hit during the week, which has reduced his injury rate and definitely his concussion rate. He's going to share with you why he's so passionate about this. The other part that he's an innovator is that Buddy, uh, two years ago, started hiring women to coach on his staff. And so I'm really looking forward to him sharing the story on how he got going down that path as well. Grateful for his innovation and his outside-the-box thinking. I hope you enjoyed today's show with Buddy Tevens. I have the fortunate fortunate pleasure to be interviewing Buddy Tevens today, who happens to be his birthday. Happy birthday. And are you 62 or 63 now? How about that? 63. Wow. In counting. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Amazing. Amazing, Buddy. Well, congratulations. And I know you probably have great birthday plans because doesn't all your family live around here? Your daughter, your son? I mean, don't they all live closely? Yeah, I have a son and a daughter and four grandkids and they're all right around, but we've got practice later this afternoon. They may come to practice and surprise granddad. Oh, that's nice. That's really, really nice. Um, so, Buddy, can you just give people a snapshot of your career? Because this is a podcast for coaches of all sports at every level. And so a lot of people may not be familiar with football and following your career. So, you know, just little bullets of where you've been, where you've coached, and where you played. Obviously, you're coaching at your alma mater, so go for it. No, certainly. I was a a Dartmouth graduate and no intention of coaching, uh, but I did get into the university as a graduate assistant, uh, Boston University as a full-time coach, uh, the University of Maine as a head coach, uh, Dartmouth College as a head coach, uh, Tulane University as a head coach. Uh, was released at Tulane, didn't win enough, went to the University of Illinois as an assistant, uh, the University of Florida as an assistant, Stanford as a head coach, was released at Stanford, and came back to Dartmouth. So kind of a whirlwind. As my wife says, I can't keep a job. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes things end up the way they should. And That's right. Happy to be back. Yeah, no, so when you're going through, obviously there's a lot of peaks and valleys in that career. Um, and, you know, for the younger coaches listening, what what advice would you give them to manage some of those valleys? Because, you know, you were like, you know, at Stanford, you know, criticized for not winning. You've been here and criticized for not winning. Um, but here you are, buddy. <laughs> a survivor, Still coaching. A survivor. <laughs> You're a survivor, right? Well, I think you have to have a thick skin. You can't read all the newspaper accounts or listen to the alums. Believe in yourself. Have a mission. Have an idea what you wanted to do and accomplish. And do it your way. Uh, some of the problems that I had, I listened to other folks and tried to adjust what I thought was maybe a more beneficial route, but it wasn't really me. And uh, coming back to Dartmouth, it was, hey, this is what I know, this is what I do, this is how I interact with people, uh, and it's worked out well. And I think uh, in retrospect, doing that every step of the way probably would have been more productive. And do you remember the moment you thought to yourself, I want to be a coach? Well, is uh, I wanted to be a player. Uh, I was <laughs> Don't a, start a, there. Okay. a short, uh, sawed-off quarterback. I <laughs> uh, had a brief opportunity in the Canadian Football League, 
but I really had no dreams or desires outside of playing and that certainly was a naive mindset and I certainly encourage my, my players at this point I say hey have an athletic dream but have an academic dream and have a social dream as well uh, it didn't work out with the playing situation uh, so I took a graduate assistant's job just on the hope of staying in shape working out and seeing if I could catch on again in the Canadian League uh, the following year it didn't work out but at that time I fell in love with coaching mm. and it's uh, been pushing 40 years now and who are you a graduate assistant under uh, Jerry Burnt. Jerry was the head coach at, he was an offensive line coach here at Dartmouth when I played, and he went on, he was at DePaul University, he's the guy that took me there, and he went on to uh, Rice and Temple, was the head coach there for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Wonderful man, taught me an awful lot about the game and a lot about people. So you like when, um, that's kind of like, that's a great segue into, like, who would you consider some of your biggest mentors in your life that have shaped you as a coach? Well, it's, I've had a lot, and uh, Steve Spur is a guy that really stands out. Uh, really a thoughtful, kind, considerate individual. The public persona sometimes is different, but he would go to the local hospital or uh, in, interact with old, um, uh, ill former players and so forth. Just he did little things that no one knew about. Uh, he was very, very good to his coaches. He was very, very, very good to his players. He was aware of the health of his players. I think he was a man ahead of his time in terms of safety and considerations. Uh, Bill Walsh. Bill was an associate athletic director at Stanford, and he became ill at the time that I was there. And we'd get, get together for lunch or breakfast on occasion. And he was, again, just very, very thoughtful, brilliant, uh, certainly with the game, but more broadly with people and, mm -hmm. and, and, and sports in general. And uh, those are the two that really had an impact. Uh, Rick Taylor, who was the athletic director at Northwestern, was a, uh, I coached with him at Boston University, tremendously organized uh, and just very broad thinking. Uh, Jay Crowthamel, who uh, the Big East basically was part of his, his background. He was my coach here at Dartmouth. So I've been very fortunate to be in good places with good people who had exceptional skills in different areas, and I kind of copied them all. Mm -hmm. Well, you were lucky because, like in our country, we don't train coaches formally. And so it really does, you, you really do have to train yourself. You have to go get that information. You have to go get the train, you know, the influencers in your life that, and, and really it's kind of a crapshoot. You know, if you're lucky if you find people who can build a lot of different skill sets in you as a coach, you know. So if you, so like when we were talking to the coaches about building their philosophy, you know, which, you know, a lot of time it's such an unconscious process. Like it just kind of like happens. But do you remember like as you were going through all your development, like taking this little piece, I call it philosophy soup, you know, what do you want to add to your recipe? You know, like what are you going to take from this coach and put in this, this soup? So do you remember like, and, and if you had to describe your philosophy, how would you describe it? Well, quite simply, I want people to excel academically, athletically, and socially. And we talk about all aspects of their lives on campus. I've been in environments where football was the be-all and end-all. And what type of person you were, how well you did in school, really didn't matter. Uh, succeed in the football field and you've made it. And, and looking at the different levels I've worked, very few people have an opportunity to make a living in sports. But they will have a career in business or law or medicine or engineering. Uh, and that's so true here at a place like Dartmouth. But I value the idea of a dream. And so I tell people all the time, and I push my coach with this, let kids chase their dream athletically, but also develop them the idea of chasing a dream outside when their career stops, which it does for all of us. Uh, you know, mentors, uh, I would look at different things along the way, and you're exactly right. There's no 
coaching school. I was a history major at Dartmouth. I didn't learn anything about coaching from my professors. It was watching my coaches. And uh, for young coaches, I really encourage them, which I did, to go around the country, work as many different camps with as many different people as you can, and then just take notes. And I've been a copious note taker my whole life. And something I learned here, okay, I like that, but I didn't like that. And just kind of weave together a, a belief. Uh, I always felt that there's that athletic thing was so huge. And I modified that over the course of time, seeing guys that had a dream, but it was never realized. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really the push that, that I've made with our, our, our players as well. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that here at Dartmouth, we're the number one team in the country of Division One football in terms of graduation rate. Mm, that's uh, great. And are we were a pretty good football team as well. And that, I think, is coaching. Uh, young people will follow their mentors and their, and their leaders. And if you say it's important to be uh, successful in the athletic environment, that's kids are going to push. If you say it's equally important to be successful in the, in the classroom setting, to, uh, to be a quality person in, in the community, people are inclined to follow that as well. Mm -hmm. It's so true. You set the tone for the, the culture, you know. And so, you know, one of our big sayings, you know, I'm the name of our nonprofit is True North Sports, which, you know, um, following your true north and having your inner compass and, you know, when I was researching you, your bios and a lot of videotapes and things that are out there about you, you, I mean, I think if I named a book after you, it would definitely be Buddy Tevens, The Road Less Traveled in the Football World. And I don't mean like how you took this job and you went to this job. What I mean is how you have been an innovator, a visionary, and done things that people have literally laughed at you in the football That's world exactly right. and and so to me you're like the epitome of somebody who has a strong internal compass and can you talk about that like how sometimes it was really hard and and just so for the people that are listening let's just go ahead and give them a little background on how you've been an innovator okay so you started the no tackle movement and it's called the dartmouth way or you call it the, that the dartmouth way right? the dartmouth way where you don't tackle during the week at football practice and i'm going to let you tell them a little bit more about that but then the second way you've been innovative lately has been hiring female coaches on your coaching staff. Um, so we're going to touch on both of those, but I really want to dive into this. How is it like that? How is it for you to follow that compass and to follow what you believe to be right about this no-tackle situation in such a macho field. Well, I mean, how'd you do that, well, buddy? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, John. North Star, kind of the guiding mm -hmm. light. We have a little saying with us, take off on Polaris, the North Star, the guiding light, the way home. Uh, it's an acronym in our program, which means to be smart, trained, aggressive, and relentless. Smart, trained, aggressive, and relentless mm -hmm. in your academic, your athletic, and your social pursuits. So that's kind of a basis for a lot of things that, that, that I do. Uh, safety in the sport. You know, years ago, CTE was announced and diagnosed uh, Bennett Amalu uh, with Mike Webster and that just struck me as there's got to be a better way uh, when I coached at Florida Steve Spurrier was very very good in terms of keeping his players safe uh, we didn't do a whole lot of banging and hitting uh, Bill Walsh as I alluded to earlier uh, would always talk about uh, looking out for your players uh, as a quarterback I was never tackled so it just dawned on me that well why does everybody else tackle all the time? I play on Saturday and I'm okay, and these guys are banged up and beat up and they're playing, why? So we just abandoned tackling completely. Uh, it was not, not the most uh, sane career move I, I, at that point. I was 
0-10 and 2-8 the previous two seasons. We had a new athletic director uh, and a new uh, president, and they were anxious to get rid of me. Yeah. And I announced it to my staff, and they just thought, we're all fired. We actually enhanced and increased our, our tackling capabilities. Missed tackles dropped 50%. Wow. And it was, we incorporated drills that replicated what we did on the field. We just do, didn't do it against people. Uh, and just simply taking one human being out of a collision equation, you cut your injury rate in half. And, and that's been kind of the, the thrust from that point forward. A Dartmouth football player coming to Dartmouth will never be tackled or make a tackle on another Dartmouth football player during his four-year experience. Uh, wow. we, we sensorize our helmets, and the subconcussive hits that accumulated over the course of time will probably, depending on the position, have 4,000 to 10,000 fewer on a, an athlete than had that athlete gone to another institution that doesn't adhere to uh, the premise that we put forth. But it and was did, not- I, did I hear a statistic in one of your interviews uh, that you did on uh, that I was watching? Is 80% of concussions are at practice? They occur at practice, is that right? 60%. 60%, yep. okay. Yeah. We, okay. We dropped our injury rate, orthopedic injury, uh, subconcussive, concussive hits dropped 80%. But in practice, uh, that's where all the injuries have. And I uh, wow. concussion okay. seasons in football, preseason, uh, uh, postseason, and spring practice. And uh, to me, it just made sense. If you're playing against your own people, your own people are going to get hurt. So how can we limit uh, last year, for example, we were 9-1. We had 21 of our 22 starters played every game. Didn't miss a practice. Mm-hmm. So if you just put yourself, regardless of the sport, in a situation where all of your top players practiced and played through the duration of your season, you know, your success rate is going to increase. Absolutely. You increase your odds dramatically. Yeah. And, and that was a big push. But the kickback from people on the outside was, you're an idiot. Uh, it's never going to work. This isn't football. Uh, you're ruining the game. Uh, I had to convince. It's, it wasn't just a quick shift with my own players. It was they were raised by people who said, bang, be physical, aggressive, uh, glorify the, the, the contact. Uh, I had to have them unlearn that mindset and learn how to be a little bit more respectful of each other. Uh, one of our mantras is, hey, we're playing against each other. Protect your, pr- protect your teammate. So mm-hmm. in practice, we have situations that could be an, a collision imminent. Guys will avoid the contact. Uh, and they can both get up, go back to the huddle, and play again on Saturday. Mm-hmm. That's really, really amazing. Like, and I, I do wonder, what is the reasoning? And and you're you're exactly right. It's kind of built into the culture of football, uh, which you know that culture far more than I do. But I feel like it does seem like there's that element that coaches might think, oh, you're making them soft. They're not like as tough when they get into it. But I, I've heard you say it, that's that's a mindset. That's, that's exactly right, uh, and I say it frequently. You go, to, go out to a playground, and you take a look around, and you're going to see people as they kind of move around. A guy that's running into things is probably going to be a football player. A guy that's real athletic uh, but doesn't like, well, maybe baseball or basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you find your little niche. And in our sport, people are tough by nature. They have to be with the nature of the sport. You don't have to make them tougher by just continually banging them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go out and do four, 400 uh, repeats on the track, uh, gasser drills. And I think this is true of all sports. You can toughen people up not by pitting them against each other, having demands, uh, kind of suffering together. That's that's a mindset as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're as well-conditioned as any team, but we're, we're more healthy. And I, I look at life after our sport. Are the guys going to have residual effects? And, and I'd, I'd say this of any other sport, and I've talked with softball coaches, soccer coaches, rugby coaches, lacrosse, hockey. 
Think about the, the situations and instances where injury is, occurs. Try to remove some of that from your practices. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you limit the practice, we have exponentially more practices than games. Protect your players in practice. And what I found in tackling, we tackle a lot. We just don't tackle each other. So in games, that muscle memory kicks in. We're tackling appropriately, and it's not as risky as it might be. We do we get concussions in games, not as many as we used to, and I think it's partly because our guys are trained more extensively at how to do it safely for mm-hmm. us and also for the opponent. Right. That's so I, I think there's, there's potentially some carryovers. I talked to a softball coach, and uh, she said that a lot of her injuries occurred when people were sliding headfirst into bases. Mm-hmm. And so why, why do you let them slide headfirst into bases, mm-hmm. especially in a practice environment? Yeah. Now, people will contest that, as they did with uh, my non-tackling in football, but the end result was my players were safer. We've had more success in our league. We've, we're the winningest team over the past six years uh, in our league, and we're the only ones that do not tackle year-round. That's, like, I, I wonder, like, it's it's fascinating to me why how more people haven't followed suit, you know, in the no tackle movement, and because it makes sense to me. Like, and and, and you know, when you say you know you practice tackling and you, and you do all this, um, I know you went to like was it the Thayer Engineering School Thayer here, Thayer School of Engineering, Thayer School of Engineering, and you all uh, developed this MVP. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? I was loving and watching Stephen Colbert tackle it. On yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had to coach him up a little that bit. That was really <laughs> funny. That was really funny. I love him. Well, so. it was an offshoot of, okay, how do we replicate hitting a moving target? And a lot of the, the equipment in football is static and stationary. Uh, so as a Dartmouth alum, I had friends that are engineers, and I call one of them John Courier, who works at the Thayer School of Engineering, and they were wonderful, very, very supportive. Uh, we actually funded a class uh, of graduate students geared specifically to try to mobilize a tackling dummy, and it worked. And that, it's uh, 190 pounds, it's about six feet tall, it runs roughly in my sport, a 4740, but it runs pretty, or, or travels very quickly. And we could then replicate a receiver darting across the field or a blocker uh, uh, approaching. And that replaced uh, an awful lot of the contact opportunities for us and put us in a situation where guys were really doing the same type of thing but not against a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, the collaborative effort uh, at many levels, the Thayer School of Engineering helped us. Uh, obviously, the Tuck School of Business here at Dartmouth and the Dartmouth community kind of embraced it. And we did get some notoriety. You mentioned mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Colbert had it on, and, <laughs> yeah. and that was kind of a hoot. But, that was really funny. But it, it, to your point, some people have been reluctant to kind of embrace that because that's not the football norm. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one of the, probably the greatest challenges, and it gets back to coaching and trusting yourself Everyone was telling me it's not the right thing to do and it's not going to work and it's going to hurt your football team. And I just, in my gut, I really believed that we could play the game. And within my own staff, we had debates. And I just said, look, if you, if you don't like it, go leave and, and work someplace else. This is how it's going to be done. Uh, not knowing if it was going to be successful. But intuitively, I just felt, hey, we can minimize the contact, maximize the safety, and still not uh, compromise the game. And it's been borne out. And... But still, it's a challenge in, in my profession. A lot of folks, it's not the way that they learned. Mm-hmm. And I think at the youth level in particular, uh, I love folks that volunteer their time, but maybe their experience was a, as a high school player or a college player years ago. You know, Up until 10, 12 years ago, nobody talked about concussive head injury. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's, it's on the forefront. 
how do people that have no background in that embrace the idea of doing something they've never been exposed to? Mm-hmm. And that really was kind of the genesis of bringing a woman into our program. Mm. Okay, so that's a great segue. Yeah. So talk to me like about you know that whole process because you know the innovation piece to me like that I see different coaches trying this bringing the women in but I'd really like to know your reasoning and how did that all come about well uh, for years when I was the head coach at Tulane University the Manning family lived just down the street and uh, Archie Manning was a legendary uh, quarterback with the Saints and uh, at Ole Miss uh, his, his children uh, Cooper was uh, in town uh, Peyton and Eli and Peyton and Eli actually came to the Buddy Tevens football camp at Tulane. So I now tell there's, people, a, there's a claim to fame right there. That's exactly right. I taught them everything you they know. You taught them everything. But just a wonderful, wonderful family. And uh, from that, we talked about starting a football camp. Uh, and it became the Manning Passing Academy, which we're going into our actually 25th season wow. uh, this year. And uh, we get quarterbacks from all over the country, the who's who in, uh, in the quarterbacking uh, area. Uh, but we were approached uh, every couple of years by a um, small number of women that said, hey, we'd love to come to the camp. And we really weren't outfit, uh, outfitted for that. But we decided uh, two years ago, hey, let's try it and see what happens. Uh, my thought was, well, if we're going to have women in camp, let's have women coaches coaching them, not knowing if there are any women football coach. I didn't know a woman football coach. Uh, I contacted uh, uh, Sam Rappaport. Uh, with the NFL, uh, the diversity office, and I asked her, and, and she had played football in Canada, and she said, well, buddy, as a matter of fact, there's 62 women's tackle football leagues in the country, which I was completely oblivious to. So she um, collected 16 names, uh, I got resumes on them, uh, wrote them each, asked them for a uh, practice plan based on the positions that they were going to play. They all came into New Orleans, and I had a chance to sit down and speak with them, and it was fascinating, but all athletic, uh, energetic, uh, excited. And I asked them, how did you get into football? And I'm one of nine kids, and uh, the two years, six boys, and then two girls and an older sister. The two girls at the bottom were always, hey, we need an extra one. Hey, come on, you be on that team. We'll be on this one. We'll touch football, tackle football, whatever. But the stories I heard from the women, was it was identical or single parent uh, or um, only child and dad loved football so dad would take the daughter to the game or teach her how to play they'd watch the Giants games together and it really kind of struck me as man that's no different than what I experienced when I was younger Uh, two of the people that that were in the camp I really was impressed with and I called our diversity uh, head here at the uh, Evelyn Ellis uh, here at Dartmouth and I said Evelyn I don't know if you guys will allow me to do this or not, but I would like to have an internship program two weeks in preseason just to have women come back up here and learn a little bit more about the game. Uh, When I neglected to mention, all 16 women actually coached Pop Warner, junior high school football, or high school football. Wow. And the thought I had was, well, if they're coaching football, can we help them understand how to do it a little bit differently, the safety aspect, uh, and maybe a little bit more thoroughly? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was, and the, the women just—they were all frustrated. They played at in some levels, and then they had they stopped when they got to high school, mm-hmm. and there was no uh, avenue. And I, I could hear and sense the frustration. So we ended up uh, inviting two uh, folks on campus. Uh, my coaches, right off the bat, were, "Hey, this is going to be a distraction. No, why would you do that? You know, I'm not, we're not a big fan." <laughs> Again, I'm the head coach. This is what we're doing. Here you go, not being popular again. Yeah, it's, and they came in. My players, I ran it by my players before, and the guys were, hey, 
cool coach hey, yeah no big deal now interestingly enough some of my players had had a woman coach in high school hmm. or junior high school uh, times are changing exactly right mm -hmm. so they came up they did a wonderful job uh, at the end uh, by happenstance I had a, a coach leave late and uh, one of the women both the women did a wonderful job one wanted to go back home to Austin Texas uh, Chanel Brooks and uh, the other Callie Bronson really wanted to stay in football uh, so with the opening I I decided we we're gonna offer Callie the position and I really didn't tell anybody about it and I announced it to the team and they went nuts oh, they just flipped out and it's mm. it's on YouTube it's kind of a neat thing kind yeah. of touching to see yeah uh, but it was not because she was a woman it's because she was a good person who knew the game and was gonna help us win mm -hmm. uh, and my coaching staff I did have one guy that was a little bit hesitant and I took a kind of a reverse step with him I said you know we got this opening but Callie, you know, I don't know. He says, Coach, she's really good. She really learned quickly. <laughs> so I think, okay, sold. And uh, and it was it was a wonder. She made our football program better. Uh -huh. And people, you know, why would you hire a woman? Well, I didn't. I hired a coach who happened to be female. My job is to do whatever I can to, to better our football program. Hiring Callie Brownson bettered our football program. Mm -hmm. We ended up, we went 9-1. and one. Uh, to her credit, she was identified uh, by the NFL, and she's now working with the Buffalo Bills. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with that, I thought, well, okay, it, she she made a difference while she was here. There must be other women out there that could do the same. And so we have uh, uh, Jennifer King uh, mm -hmm. from uh, North Carolina, and uh, she just just joined us. But we're really excited about it. Scott Pioli, Scott was the former general manager mm -hmm. with the uh, the Atlanta Falcons, was with the Patriots for a long time. He's been very, very helpful and very collaborative in terms of identifying people. And my push was not so much because a lot of folks will hire women in the front office. And my thought was there are women who really want to coach, want to get their hands dirty, if you will, beyond the field, schematically, technically. And that's what my interest level was, was to bring someone in who really wanted to learn the, the, the art, the technique, uh, the skill set of being a coach. Uh, because I think women will be involved with the game. And uh, I've had two very, very good ones so far, and hopefully more to follow. Mm -hmm. And and I think one of the things, too, to Scott Pioli's credit is he has established a scholarship at the Women's Sports Foundation for women who want to get involved or, you know, uh, I don't know if it's a scholarship or an internship, um, so to speak, that he's funded from his own personal money because he believes in women in coaching that much. I mean, so it's really, really awesome. Uh, the work that he's doing too. So you two found some kindred spirit amongst, and you know him from a long time. Like he played, he was a player. He played at the uh, yeah. University of Connecticut when I was a head coach at the University of Maine. Oh, so yeah, I yeah. knew of him. We compared the personnel and so forth way back, and he's had a wonderful run in uh, professional football. I don't think he's done yet, mm -hmm. uh, but he's uh, taken a little bit of a sabbatical. But the uh, Women's Sports Foundation, uh, mm -hmm. to me, that's it's awesome to mm -hmm. uh, uh, fund internship opportunities for women, not just in football but in other sports as well, uh, to help people kind of get started. The football coaching profession is hard to break into. Yeah. Uh, you know, graduate assistantships and so forth. And uh, how many women actually want to get into the, the, the coaching aspect? That's a question that I still have. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I've encouraged some of my peers, and I had a lot of folks call me and say, you know, hey, you know, why did you do it? And hey, how did it go? And what? And it was an A plus across the board. Mm -hmm. Now the key is all you have to f find the right combination. Someone that really wants to be a coach. It's there are long hours. You put a lot of time into it. Uh, interpersonal skills are important. You're relating to a variety of different people, uh, age, uh, uh, interest, uh, socioeconomic level, and whatnot. But someone that is 
passionate about coaching, male, female, it doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. And what I found is, and I said it way back when, bringing a woman on initially was going to be an educational opportunity for my coaches, my players, um, and myself. I didn't know which way it was going to go. Mm-hmm. But I had the right person. She came in and convinced everybody that she was qualified. She was better in many regards than a lot of folks that I've had here in the past. She was passionate about it, and it, it was she took it very, very seriously. And, and, and to me, someone that has a passion wants to go... Don't worry about the obstacles. Keep plowing ahead. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are going to, uh, in my position, these would take a risk. There was no risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew what I was getting, uh, and it, it worked out well for us. And, and uh, with Jen, I, th- I feel like it will go the same way. And do you think, um, like I, I understand when you say that, you know, there's really, she's qualified, she's passionate, you know, she's a hard worker, you know, all those things that, you know, she's just a good coach, you know. But do you feel like there is something different that women bring? Or do you think it doesn't really feel any different to you at all? Or is there something unique that a woman brings? Yeah, I, I think, and that was kind of the unanticipated. Uh, the presence, it just, I, I, well, hopefully I'm correct in, in, in throwing this out. It was almost a calming uh, mm-hmm. sense uh, with the, in the, the coaching room. Your language mm-hmm. changed subtly a little bit, and I was advised: he do not treat anybody any differently. If you drop an F bomb here, don't don't worry about. It. And I asked Sam Rappaport, I said, "Well, look, I open doors for everybody." She said, "Well, that's cool, but don't just open it for for a woman on your staff." Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was, a, a, with my players, there was a, just a little bit, and a calm is probably, and that's the best word I can come up with, but it was, it was settling. Uh, in just a little bit different way, the kind of the macho thing kind of dissipated a little bit for the benefit of our team. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, Callie is a fiery son of a gun, game day, man, she lighted up and she'd jump in people's face and everything else. So there was that element, but it didn't exist the entire week. And I think that was healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, a, again, a calmer presence and that there was an impact on me, there was an impact on my coaches. Subtle, we didn't radically change. We, got to the, we didn't think. It was just, hey, Coach, coach Bronson. It wasn't mm-hmm. Callie the woman. It was just another coach. Mm-hmm. Same with the players. So it's a, a, an interesting question you ask, and I haven't thought deeply about it, but that's my gut reaction is it was just a little bit more calm to the benefit of the program. Mm-hmm. That's great because I, I, I struggle sometimes with this part of the male culture because I've been working with male coaches now for the last five years, and the interesting thing is I feel very connected to them because I think whatever reason, they feel safe being vulnerable with me. Like I can have conversations with these male coaches that I'm sure they're not having with their male counterparts, you know, about things they're struggling with, um, how they feel stressed about their family and their work-life balance or, you know, things that, you know, they feel like they know they need to get better at but they can't admit it to anybody else, like emotional control or whatever, you know, that might be. So sometimes I struggle when, you know, this rhetoric is out there sometimes around, well, you got to see a man to be a man. And, and to me, what I, what I say, to, I've had this conversation with some men who say that, and I say to me, you're saying once again that women aren't qualified to raise a healthy man or women don't have anything valuable to offer a man. It, it takes a man to teach a man how to be a man. I'm like, really? Like, I had men and women who shaped me. Why can't a man have a woman shape him? But it's, to me, another subtle bias that's out there that we minimize the role of women in the development of men. 
and that to me is the lack of respect that's playing in the background of athletics where we think women are less than they're not as good a leader and so on and so forth but I just feel like let's take that out women raise men all the time you know they you know and then they get to athletics this is the part like what is it 50 percent of homes are divorced and they're being raised by a single mother and they adore her. I mean, you see these guys get interviewed, my mom, my grandma, I mean, and then they get into the athletic world and they need a man to be the role model. And I'm like, well, I do think that's good to have a healthy male role model, but what about the healthy female role models that have shaped those young men? Why do we fluff that off? Well, it's interesting and analogous to the, the tackling situation. Well, we, we have to tackle because we've always tackled. Mm-hmm. And I think culturally, you know, for people in my generation and, and probably you know, many years after, it was well, football is male-dominated. And women, yeah, your mom, and you're exactly right. Who do you talk with? Uh, your, your family, your, your mom, your daughter as a guy, uh, your spouse. And people just have felt, hey, you've got to separate that. Uh, I did it by for no other reason in terms of uh, all guys during the course of my coaching career because that's just kind of who was out there. Mm-hmm. And then w- having people express that they might want to, as a female, become involved with football. My mindset, my mom, nine kids, man, she's strong and she's the go-to person and, right. and so forth. You're exactly right. Uh, but I think it's that the paradigm that males carry that, well, this is the way that it has to be. And it's not. It wasn't with tackling. It's not with a female on your staff. How do you get people to kind of embrace that? Because it's again stepping into unknown, uncharted waters, and people are, are worried, especially in my sport. If you do something different and you lose, you're fired. Mm-hmm. And so, how reluctant are people? And you know, my my push, and I did contact a number of schools about, hey, this was a wonderful experience on many levels for us. You guys ought to consider it. Didn't work out this year. You know, hopefully, uh, you know, we, people will continue to consider it. Because it will make a difference. Uh, you know, Callie Brownson. Callie, she mm-hmm. could. She, she she'll be a positional coach in the NFL. Right. Now, will someone give her that opportunity? Uh, she has all the skill sets to be a head coach. Uh, will someone give her that opportunity in our sport? You, you don't know. But I do see subtle change. But unfortunately, change seems to take more time than uh, we want to give it. Sometimes. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like turning the Titanic, right? Right. So, um, let's see. When you started coaching Buddy, do you did you this evolution of Buddy Tevens? Did you come in with that you know that machismo um, mentality and just over the years you feel like you've evolved and and just expanded your perspective around that? Yeah, well, when I got into coaching, again, who did you emulate? Guys mm-hmm. that you saw that coached, and they were mm-hmm. tough and physical and hard and, and push players, and approachability was kind of limited, and that was the old-school coach, and mm-hmm. that's who I became. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I took over programs that generally were not very successful, and it was, we're going to be tougher than everybody else. We're going to be harder. We're going to work. And the attrition rate, uh, uh, the, the injury rate was high. But it was like, well, okay, that's that's part of the deal. That's That's football. And it took kind of time and exposure. You know, one of the benefits of moving to a variety of spots was you different cultures you uh, encountered. You know, Florida had a profound impact on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, co- Becky Burley, just mm-hmm. uh, getting to know her and what she did with with her uh, uh, players in the soccer program. Certainly, uh, Coach Spurrier and watch. It was just a little bit different. 
uh, how everybody interconnected, worked together, picked each other's brains, and I thought that was somewhat unique. Uh, so you modify your thoughts over time. Uh, going out to Stanford was very, very helpful. Coming back to Dartmouth, it was Dartmouth was, was down. There was a lot of work to be done, but transitioning a little bit. I, I think you do. You as a coach, as long as you're willing, you're not so hard-minded that there's only one way. There's a lot of ways to accomplish a goal. And some of mine worked in the past and some of them didn't. And mm -hmm. my thought was modify and adjust as time goes on. And I, I think young coaches can benefit from a, a mindset like that. You know, it's not, uh, there is no gospel in athletics. You know, figure it out uh, in what makes sense to you and don't be afraid to step outside the boundaries, so to speak, uh, to build a program. Yeah, it's really hard to follow what being your genuine self. You know, it's like you, you see how so many people are drawn to going to listen to every top coach that's won a Super Bowl. And, you know, and, and it's just like they just want to be that person. And they never can because, you know, they have to be themselves. But anyway, um, what would you say are your superpowers? What, are, what is really unique to you? Yeah, I, I don't have any superpowers. Oh, come on, uh, yeah, yeah. come on, we I, all do. I, I think the thing that I, I, I enjoy people, mm -hmm. and it's, it's fun and very rewarding to see people have great success, not just on the field. You know, we've had people come through here at Dartmouth that they never played for us. They, they came to every practice, they went to every workout, they were the consummate team player, and they've gone on to have success in life in a lot of different fields. Mm -hmm. And I, I think coaches, in many cases more so than faculty members and professors, can have such a profound impact on the lives of, of their charges. Uh, I tell our players, they will spend more time with me than any faculty member on campus during the next four years. Mm -hmm. uh, I can be very narrow-minded and just work from a football perspective and help them become better athletes, but am I depriving them uh, of an opportunity to develop as people, uh, develop as students? Uh, and and you know, I go back in my day, if my faculty member, the English professor, said she had to see me and my football coach said he had to see me, I'd go see the football coach first. Mm -hmm. And uh, I encourage a lot of folks to... It, it was a foreign thought when I first came back here. Obviously, we have wonderful students, but really the pressure to achieve academically. Uh, you know, again, the highest graduation in the country for uh, Division One football players. You know, why is that here at Dartmouth? My staff is actively involved with the athletic, the academic development as well as the, uh, the athletic development. And I think other folks can do the, the same. Uh, the NCAA certainly is making a push for graduation records and so forth. You look at some of the top coaches in the country in all sports, male and female, the ones that are winning are also graduating their guys. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's, there's a, a, a whole uh, wholesome approach to it. It's not just the athletic event. Mm -hmm. What I love about what you're doing with your team with the no tackle thing too, to me, is it's like you're, you're touching on all the aspects of how they need to play at a high level from the mental aspect of the game. It's, it's like, and technique-wise, so you're still working very much on the technique, which is probably more than a lot of teams are doing, which is why you're a great tackling team. But then you're also, the mentality is still like, you still are developing mental, what I like to call mental resiliency, where, you know, you, you might, you might have a bad play. How do you quickly do you respond? You know, the whole, the whole mental aspect of it. And then your, your players are going to be physically and emotionally refreshed when they come to the game. And not that you don't work hard during the week, but you know, football's tough on your body, which is obvious, but I just really love how all of that seems to come together but most importantly, buddy, I'm so glad you're winning. 
Because to me, unfortunately, in our society, if you weren't winning and you were doing that, I would you'd not have be a in job. The, you would be in the. You would not be working here at Dartmouth. I would not have a job. That's exactly, and that's mm -hmm. the shame of it. Uh, and people, and, and that's why there's a hesitancy. I think people have asked me frequently, well, why don't other coaches do it? Uh, could you know you name the, the top profile coach? They they could, and if they they stumbled and they didn't succeed, and nothing to do with the tackling end of it they'd be unemployed mm -hmm. and people are not willing to, to take that risk mm -hmm. uh, the the injury rate uh, in college football basically everybody gets hurt you know just to the, the, the degree and severity mm -hmm. well if most of them occur in practice as a coach I feel I owe it to my players uh, I said to testify in front of Congress if I love the game but I love my players more mm -hmm. you're dealing with someone's child so do you subject them to situations that you know, could be harmful and, and, and damaging. Uh, try to avoid those things, and you don't have to compromise the sport. With regard to tackling, I think it has to be legislated in. Mm -hmm. I don't think any one coach will say this is what we're going to do. Right. And I found this with the Ivy League coaches. Um, I, I petitioned this past spring uh, to, hey, let's all do what I do. Mm -hmm. now, the Ivy League did collectively uh, elect not to tackle in season, which was not a big giveaway because most people in season aren't going to tackle their top players. Uh, but in spring practice and preseason, and there was a, a, a vote taken, and it was one to seven. And uh, my, my deal was, hey, let's abolish it all. And the, the seven others felt that they couldn't. So I think league-wide, mm -hmm. if people say, we will not do this, I don't think the game will be impacted negatively. Uh, and I think certainly the health of the players will be enhanced. That's, that's just really amazing. So... I'm going to ask you some questions just on reflection when it comes to some of your, you know, when you look at young assistant coaches. What what do you think is a common mistake that you see assistant coaches making as they're going in their career? I, I think sometimes young assistants will be very, very narrow-minded. They have a perception, whether it's a, the coach I played for, that's the only way to do it. And I think you have to be aware of your environment. Uh, coaching an Ivy League player is a little bit different than coaching uh, at a different institution. And the different institutions change from school to school. Understand the culture of the, the environment you're in, whether it's um, high school or youth foot sports or whatnot. And in terms of identifying your players and understanding what makes them tick, what's socioeconomic background, uh, family background, my attitude is you've got to know the person to get the best out of the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're motivated in a lot of different ways. It's not strictly success. Uh, being that hard coach, and I have to break some of our younger coaches that they were coached in an aggressive and a hard fashion, but that's not really not their personality. Mm -hmm. You know, determine your personality, and people say, oh, I'm soft-spoken and I'm nice and so forth. I have my time that I can get after people and so forth, but people will see if there's a genuine and sincere approach or if it's a, a facade. And I'd say young folks, guard against the facade. Be who you are, and there are times that you're going to have to go different ends of the spectrum, but kind of keep it on a balance, uh, and people are going to respond mm -hmm. to you. Well, I did, I did this one talk one time about gender and sport, and one of our coaches that was at our Camp Elevate program from the University of Colorado, they had a campaign within their department that says language matters, and they would not allow degrading language within their department of calling you know guys pussies or you know do you have a philosophy around that the type of language that's used in your program yeah we, we address it directly the most mm -hmm. uh, racist sexist homophobic misogynistic language used ever and be the guy that stands up in the lunch line at the, the cafeteria and someone says oh that's so just shut it down hey mm -hmm. man you don't have to go there people on our campus and most campus they're going to know who the athlete is 
The athlete can be the conformist who just kind of huddles together with their little group, laughs, laughs at the, the little jokes made within the group, or they can stand up and say, hey, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a very diverse football program, and I, I, when we talk about it, I say, you look around. We all may have an aunt or an uncle who tells these off-color uh, deals. Who are they talking about? You know, uh, the white kid, the mixed race kid, the African American kid, the Asian American kid, the the Native American kid. It's talking about us, and and that kind of strikes a chord with people when you think about it. I think some coaches really avoid talking about some of the social issues because they're awkward. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I tell my players, uh, we talked about you know Black Lives Matter profiling and so forth, and amongst Black, White, Hispanic, Native American, Asian American, mixed race folks. And I said to them, I said, look, I know you're all talking about this with people that look like you. How about talking about it with people that don't look like you? Mm-hmm. We've got a perfect environment to do, do, to do so. You know, people ask me after, you know, how, why would you say that? Well, I have a collection of people who I envision as being leaders in the world. Can we help them understand leadership? It's a just increasingly more diverse environment that people are, are entering into. Help people learn how other people operate and tick. Have a guy stand up and talk about what was it like growing up in a cattle ranch in Calgary, Alberta, or an uh, inner city situation in San Diego, because the op- they don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't talk about it and, uh, and pretend it doesn't exist. Well, it does. Get a perspective, a staunch Republican or an avid Democrat. Have them stand up in a, in a combined group. Talk about why do they feel the way that they do. Mm-hmm. And I think some people really shy away from that. I almost feel like it's, a, it's my responsibility. Yeah. I'm really trying to develop successful athletes as I tell them all, I want a great football player at football time, I want a great student at academic time, and I want a great guy all the time. Mm-hmm. So we address all the different issues that, that pop up. Uh, praise kids for doing well. I, we have A Day, and we put up on the board all the kids that have an A in anything. It doesn't yeah. quiz, paper, oral presentation. Uh, it demonstrates excellence. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the football superlatives. I've got 120 guys on my team. They don't all play, but every one of them has a quiz or a paper applaud them for doing something special right. people involved in community service have them stand up and take a bow and it's the the development of the whole person I think is important and as a coach they, I know they're not playing football when they're 50 and 60 years old mm-hmm. but some of the things maybe we talked about will have an impact on their life and the success they have for that 40 or 50 years after they leave us mm-hmm. we you know a lot of people talk about culture and I always I tell the coaches, I believe the definition of a positive team culture is when the players have each other's back, but that the coaches have the players' back, but that the players also have the coaches' back. And it's like everybody has everybody's back. You know, when you have a positive culture, that kind of that kind of atmosphere is there. Um, this is might be a little bit of a personal question, but have you ever had a player come out to you as gay on your football team? Not while it, while he was playing, but mm-hmm. I've had a couple since. Yeah. And, I, and, it, and it bothered me, and I've asked them, you know, why didn't you say something when you were a player? Just the, the culture, the environment, uh, the stigma, and, and football specifically. You know, of all the sports uh, that uh, males participate in, females participate in, football is the one yeah. that it's just, hey, you just don't do that. Yeah. Uh, and that's... Uh, I feel yeah. bad for those guys. I mean, yeah. I, I really do. It's got to be tough when... You know, everybody's in the locker room talking about their girlfriend or this or that, and they're just silent, you know, yeah. or they pretend like they have a girlfriend yeah. or whatever, but that's that's got to be tough. Well, it's, and it's, uh, you, you like to get the culture. We talk about different things along those lines uh, with our players, and uh, we have a, another little acronym. You call it CARE, mm-hmm. 
Mm. Uh, Dartmouth, we care, and I give the guys a little band when they first arrive. And it's the care is the obvious. Hey, we care about our institution, our community, our friends, our teammates, ourselves. And the uh, the acronym stands for consider. We're not all the same, and we talk about uh, you name uh, uh, a accept. Uh, I may not believe in in the political point of view. He's a pretty good guy. He's a friend of mine. Yeah, okay, I'll roll with that. Uh, our respect. Everybody deserves respect. There's wonderfully intelligent people here. Listen to them. Don't stick your feet in the sand like the Fox News and CNN mm-hmm. and just you know talk over people. And then you educate. If you don't know, ask. If they don't know, teach. So we'll have uh, opportunities to converse about a variety of topics and uh, black-white issues, uh, LGBT uh, issues, uh, bathroom situation in North Carolina, uh, Black Lives Matter, profiling, all the different things that are real world that we're all exposed to, we may not all be a part of, but to kind of understand and, and hear of opinion, uh, an opinion voiced. Uh, and it's I, I got an election a few years back, uh, my guys were all bummed out about it, brought them together. And I asked one of the guys, a young black kid from California, he said, well, the way I feel, Coach, anybody that voted for this uh, person uh, hates me. And, it, I mean, there's complete silence in the room. And then people kind of said, well, you know, you can't feel that way. But I saw the guys that were kind of staunch in one direction look, and it was like it was personal. It was He's one of us, and that's yeah, how he feels. Right. Uh, you know, we'll talk about uh, cancer, uh, you know, moms with breast cancer and right. dads with braids cancer. Have a guy stand up and say, yeah, you know, my grandmother passed away two two years ago. And, well, everybody can kind of, they all know somebody that has had cancer. And I think getting issues like this out, we have a captured audience, as I term it. They're there for a football meeting. doesn't mean we can't talk about issues that are relevant and are going to impact their lives in some way down the road. I think it's healthy for them. Awkward sometimes for coaches. My safe sex presentation is, is, a, is a wild one. But you touch on things that are going to hit home with the guys that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you're far more innovative than I even gave you credit for. <laughs> um, so this is the last little piece here that I'm going to do is this, what I call rapid fire questions. All right. So I'll, tr- I'll try to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're, you are, you're, fan- I could talk to you all day, mm-hmm. buddy. Um, best advice you've ever been given. Trust yourself. A common mistake coaches make, let's just talk head coaches. You've already talked about assistant coaches. What do you think is a common mistake head coaches make? Trying to be something that you're not. Mm. And when it comes to your athletes, how do you get feedback from them? I bring them in and just sit down and talk with them. Uh, And I hope that they have a comfort level to sit down with the head coach. Some of them are intimidated in the head coach's office. So I try to meet Mm -hmm. them on their turf Mm -hmm. and just talk about, hey, what do you think about such and such? And I do it with such regularity input is is welcomed and i use some of the input that i get from our players mm-hmm. so, so they see some success from their feedback mm-hmm. right right um what is something unique most people don't know about you it's a tough one uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm an independent thinker uh, it's, uh, and maybe I, I march to my own drum but uh what was your degree in buddy from here i, I was a history major okay just enjoyed reading and writing and uh, just the old times, and it's been very, very helpful. I also dabble in psychology, which has been helpful, just try to understand people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the pre-med, they last a little bit, so if I have a guy hurt, I have an inkling of what went, what went wrong. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's a unique thing. A lot of people probably don't know you majored in history, you know, love reading and writing. If you could have lunch with anyone dead or alive, who would that be? 
Yeah, Bill Walsh would be a guy that I would love to come back and uh, mm-hmm. and, and sit down and talk with. Just the conversation we had were wonderful, but he's uh, uh, fascinating than John F. Kennedy. I'm a Boston area guy, and mm-hmm. just just kind of a you know just a, an interesting person, interesting perspective uh, on life and and so forth. All right, finish this sentence. Great coaches know how to relate to their players. I guess I've already, we've kind of covered this, but do you have another mantra that you personally live by? Grind. It's something I use with just grind away. Whatever Mm -hmm. it is, adversity and so forth, just find a way through it. Believe in yourself, trust yourself, and just keep working. Besides exercise, which we know you are Mm -hmm. an exercise Mm -hmm. machine, a healthy part of my daily ritual is... Yeah, I, I just I work a lot. Uh, I put a lot, but it's not work. I mean, I enjoy the people that I'm involved with. Uh, off times in the off season, I like to whittle. I, mm. I carve, wood carve a little bit, and it just uh, I'll sit in the beach and just a piece of wood. I can't sit still very long. So mm. if I'm active with something, and that's mm-hmm. it's kind of relaxing. What is one of your favorite books that you've ever read? read? Oh, God, yeah, I, I, I've. There's so many. There's so many. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, anyone pop in your head? No, not right off the uh, off the top. Uh, All right, just, so we'll come back to we'll that. We'll come one. back to that one. If I wasn't coaching, I'd be a history teacher. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but possibly. I went to a, a year prep school, Deerfield Academy, mm-hmm. and if I weren't te- uh, coaching, I probably would be teaching. Mm-hmm. What do you love about being a parent? You know, the joy of seeing your your child develop and feel like you've had some impact. That they make good decisions and have success uh, in later life and. It's it's interesting. I have 120 sons right now, uh, and just some of the things that you do you do with your players are what you had done with your son years ago. Mm-hmm. And what would you, if you think about those 120 sons on your team, what what um what do you think would be three words they would use to describe you as your their coach? Uh, caring, thoughtful, and focused. Probably intense would be another one that they throw for us. <laughs> I have heard you have an intense side. That's what I have heard. And and last, um, who inspires you, buddy? Like who are, who are the people in your world every day that inspire you and rejuvenate your spirit and you know keep you going? Really, my players mm-hmm. to come in and see, and they, they change every year. We got a new crop of freshmen coming in with departing seniors, but see the seeing the development, and that's it's inspiring to see the impact as a as a human being I can have on other human beings uh, in directed areas their academic their athletic and their social life but to see how rewarding it is for a lot of young guys that they do a skill set on the football field for the first time or they get an A in a class that they were really working hard at or interpersonal skills I like to make them stand up and public speak in front of a and some that aren't so good and that later in life you see that man they really it worked out for them it really them. blossomed for yeah. them in that area yeah that's really yeah. cool and you feel like man you've had you've had an, an impact on people mm-hmm. well buddy thank you so much for taking time to visit with me today on your birthday uh, at game week so there's not many football coaches that would take a podcast interview no, no. in the middle so I'll give Becky Burley credit for getting me in their door so I appreciate you taking time to, to spend with me well thanks for taking the time to come up and uh, tell Becky I said hello she's been inspirational uh, over the course of time as well but uh, th- this to me is, is, is worthwhile for me just to kind of articulate some things but I also encourage younger coaches I mean trust yourself believe in yourself grind work away at it but uh, make a difference in the world. Hi, coaches. Thank you so much for joining us on this Coaches on the Rise episode. 
There's a few little things that we'd really like to ask you to do for us that might seem little, but they're huge for True North Sports. First, if you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe. And we'd really like to hear what you have to say about our podcast by writing a short review. The second thing is please share our podcast with other coaching colleagues that you have. And the third thing is join us on social media. Follow the different programs, um, things that we're offering through True North Sports for all coaches of all sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. And until next month, keep shining bright, coaches.